Amen. That's the word. In the 73rd Psalm, David is lamenting, and we, we touched on this psalm a little bit last week, but <clears throat> David is lamenting the fact that his efforts to live righteously seem to only bring him more struggle. And that as he tries to keep the word of God, to obey the commandments of the Lord, that somehow his life increases in difficulty. And this, this, the way David is feeling is only exacerbated or made worse by the fact that he observes the wicked who are not only sinful, but they're glorying in their sin and they appear to be living a prosperous life. It seems that everything is going well for them. And this is really disturbing, David, which is understanding, understandable. Sorry. And those of you that are familiar with the psalm know that David, David finally goes to the house of the Lord. When David gets to church, it's there that balance is restored to his understanding. It's there that he is reminded of the bigger picture of what happens at the end. Amen. We need to remember that we are only in the middle or at some point in our journey. And ultimately, it is how we finish that matters. You may make a lot of mistakes, and you will, and I will. That seems to be part of the human condition. But how I finish this thing is what matters. And David came to understand when he got to the house of the Lord what the end of all things would be and recognized that every struggle he went through was worth it and the pain of sin that they were going to face later on was not attractive at all. And in verse 6 of this psalm, it says this, Psalm 73 and 6, Therefore pride compasses them about as a chain, and violence covereth them as a garment. And in this verse, David is describing the wicked as wearing their pride like a chain, not in the sense of, of being bound, but in the sense of an ornament, of something that they're proud of. They're wearing it as something that is a display piece like a ruler would wear. Like you go, I, I haven't been to the council chambers for a long, long time, but often in official uh, political gatherings, the mayor has a, has a mayoral chain that he will wear in certain places. And, and the, the, that is the context of what David is saying. He's saying not only are they proud, but they are proud of their pride. And they wear it not with shamefacedness, but rather as something to be displayed. But what David does not mention, but I believe that the Scripture clearly shows us in other places, is that as the wicked adorn themselves with an ornamental chain of pride, at the same time they are wrapping themselves in a chain of sin that is not so easily broken. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 says that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29 and 23 says that a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. And so this morning, I'm, going to, I'm not going to tell you that I won't be long. I said that last week and I lied. I do apologize. I'm going to give up on saying how long I will or will not be and just preach until we're done. But I want to preach this morning about the chains of pride. The chains of pride. According to to those who produce the Oxford Dictionary, pride or the state of being proud is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements and that it is the quality 
of having an excessively high opinion of one's self or of one's importance. Pride, I believe, is the seedbed of all sin. The decision to disobey God in almost any capacity has its roots in the elevation of self. It's not always in the conscious thought, you know, when we make a decision to sin, we don't consciously always think, today I will promote my own will. Or today I will provoke, promote my own value or my own desires above God. But pride is woven into the fabric of sin, if I can use that expression, and into the fabric of the sinful nature of humanity. And anything that contradicts God, that is disobedient to God, that is in opposition to God, is born out of pride. Perhaps not understanding so, but that is where its roots are found. If you will go to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians 2, and we're going to start to read at verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The challenge that Paul brings to us in this passage is to consider the mindset that Jesus had, to consider his approach and the, the manner in which he went about who he was and to strive to replicate or to produce that in our own lives. That's the challenge that Paul gives us. He said, let this mind be in you as it was in Jesus. You see, when Jesus walked the earth as a man, his deity or that of him that was God, was not reduced in any way at all. He was, the Bible says, God manifest in the flesh. He was, as the Scripture says, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There was nothing about him that, was in, from the viewpoint of his deity that was reduced because he was manifest in the flesh. He was fully God and he was fully man. Now that doesn't make sense in the way we think of something being full but that's the mystery of, the, of godliness, that he would manifest himself in the flesh. But the Bible says that even though none of his deity was lacking, he chose to be of no reputation. In the original language, that translates perhaps a little better as he emptied himself. It does not say that he chose to have a good reputation or to have a bad reputation, but to have no reputation. And that's worth paying attention to. This does not mean that he was unknown. You know, we think that if somebody has no reputation, nobody knows anything about them. But Jesus was known. Everywhere he went, they spoke about him. Everywhere he went, they talked about who he was and the things that he did and the things that he said. He had a reputation. In fact, we looked at it last week when he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? 
You could rephrase it and say, what is my reputation? He obviously had a reputation, but when he made himself of no reputation, the principle that is being communicated here is that he was neither looking for glory, nor was he hiding himself away. His purpose was to focus not on himself, but on the will of God. He wasn't interested in establishing a reputation amongst people. You get one of those whether you like it or not. Everybody has a reputation. But his purpose and his focus was not on himself, but on the will of God, or, or in other words, the purpose of his manifestation. He sought no recognition. In fact, you read some of the Gospels, he actually avoided it. He would do a miracle and then say, don't tell anybody about this. But he focused himself upon doing the will of the Father. And as our ultimate example, through this emptying of himself and then submitting himself to the death of the cross, the Bible says that God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. Amen. And in this, we see a principle. We see a principle that John the Baptist was one of the first to articulate so well when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. In James chapter 4 and verse 10 and 1 Peter 5 and 6, both of these writers speak to us of that same principle that if you will humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, then James said that he shall lift you up. Peter said that he may exalt you in due time. That is the principle of the scripture, that if we will humble ourselves, that if we will, as Jesus did, make himself, make ourselves of no reputation, then he will, in his time, as he spoke to us through the gifts, lift us up or exalt us. Now, what we have to be very careful of here is that we don't read the divinely inspired word of God and interpret it through carnal thinking. Because when it speaks about how that he will lift us up or that he will exalt us, it is a mistake, I believe, to assume that this speaks of position or of recognition of authority over others. That's pride trying to find its way back in again. That kind of a thinking process leads to a corporate business worldview of the church that if I will do A, B, and C, then I will be promoted up some imaginary executive church ladder until, may God deliver you, you reach the supposed top, which is the position of the pastor. That's an illusion. When God exalts and God lifts up, he's not talking about position. He's not talking about, well, if you're good and you tick all the right boxes, I'll make you a Sunday school teacher. And then if you maintain that for a while, you can be the youth leader. And then after a while, you can be in charge of the worship team or men's or ladies or youth or whatever it is. And ultimately, if you do all the right things and grease all the right palms and say the right stuff, you can reach the top of the tree and be the pastor. That is a completely false concept. In fact... In fact, the principle of the Scripture is often that God will use those that do not seem to demonstrate an amazing amount of talent or ability because that way He is glorified. That's why Paul said, not many wise, not many mighty. That doesn't mean that the people that fill our pulpits and pastor our churches are all stupid, but it means that it is about God receiving the glory. So when we think of being exalted in due time, that is not the right perspective. 
the humble pursuit of God, and this is, if you're a note taker, let me be bold enough to say this is worth writing down. The humble pursuit of God is not rewarded with responsibility, but with revelation. That's his will. Amen. Paul at no point wrote and said, oh, that I may be the senior pastor or the bishop. Paul wrote and said, that I may know him. That's what he said. Nowhere do we read in the epistles that Paul said that God will raise you up and seat you on the church board. It's not in the Word of God. But in Ephesians 2 and 6, he said that he has raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You want to be exalted in the eyes of men? Go for position. But I would much rather pursue him and put myself down that I might find myself in his presence, at his feet, him revealing himself to me. It is so easy for us to mistakenly assess spiritual processes through the lens of human pride. Hallelujah. Any position in the house of God does have some prerequisites. That's true. That's biblical. There are things that we require of people in leadership, require of ministers, require of pastors, but it is not some sort of corporate process. Do not measure your spiritual qualities by the positions that you hold. You measure them by the closeness you have with the King of Kings. Talking about the chains of pride this morning. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. I was listening to Brother Tanny. Uh, if you don't know that name, he's an elder, a man that has been in ministry for more than 60 years. And he was being interviewed by a young man just talking to him about ministry. And the young man interviewing the elder said, what advice would you give to a young person who's considering entering the ministry? And Brother Tanny said, do everything you can to get out of it. He said, because if you can get out of it, you didn't have the call in the first place. He said, if there's a call, it doesn't matter how hard you try, it will not let you go. And that's how God decides who has what responsibility, not because they make the most successful achievements. But in Romans chapter 1, a very strong chapter of the Scripture. The whole epistle is very strong, actually. But in verse 18, let's start to read at verse 18, and then we'll look at it a piece at a time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain, in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This passage paints a picture of the downward spiral 
of humanity as it journeys further and further away from God. It speaks of how that God has shown them who He is, how He has revealed Himself through creation, and how it even says that He's manifest in them. And even through that, the Bible says that man is without excuse. But even then, he's holding the truth in unrighteousness. And even with this knowledge and this understanding, man fails to glorify God, and he is not thankful to God or for God. But rather, they fill their own minds with empty, vain imaginations, which bring darkness into their hearts. You can see this step is just further and further away from God declaring their own thinking to be wise, or in other words, rejecting God's thinking, they become fools. And they begin to make idols, images of corruptible men. You go back in history, you can see the worship of kings and emperors. In a modern context, humanism is a form of the worship of mankind. And images of the animal kingdom, idols of strange creatures, sometimes a combination of both. You look in the Old Testament, you see the Philistines at one point worshipped a god named Dagon, who's this sort of half-man, half-fish creature. Now, where they came up with this stuff, you know, in, in a modern context, we could consider the way that much of humanity is now in a place where they worship nature. And then it goes on to say, they changed the truth of God into a lie. That's King James English, but it's probably better understood as they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You can't change truth. Truth is truth. You can choose to believe something else, but truth by its very definition cannot be changed. So they exchanged the truth of God they had for a lie and chose to believe that instead. You see, the original hierarchy or the original order of creation was that God is first. Man was second, created to worship that God. And then creation, or particularly the animal kingdom, was third, and man was supposed to have dominion over the animal kingdom. That's what we read in the plan of creation. But the hierarchy or the structure that we read about taking place here in Romans 1 is that the creation, or animals and nature, have been exalted to a place where man has put himself beneath them and begins to worship them. That which was supposed to be under his dominion, he has chosen to put above himself and to make idols of. And God is not only reduced, but he's often completely excluded from the picture altogether. This is the lie that man believed in sin and why they've, they've encouraged or imported, if I can use that word, darkness into their foolish hearts. Amen. But the question as I was studying is this. Why would they do that? Let's be rational today. Why reject an all-powerful God who has revealed himself and put in his place a really, really poor substitute? Something that they made themselves with their own hands. Something that cannot hear them, that cannot see them, that cannot answer them. Why would you do that? And the answer to that question is it all comes back to pride. It all comes back to pride because when man makes his own gods, it allows him to decide how worship takes place. It allows him to decide what is right, what is wrong, 
what is moral and what is immoral. It gives him a false liberty to promote a self-designed, self-made image. And as foolish as and irrational as it seems to replace the God of gods and the King of kings with something fashioned out of wood or stone or clay, it allows man to have control of his own destiny, or at least that's what he thinks. There's a reason that in the Old Testament, God spoke very strongly against idolatry. In Exodus 20 and 4, it says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In Leviticus 26 and 1, he said, You shall make you no idols, nor graven image, neither rear up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it, for I am the Lord thy God. God was emphatic about that in the Old Testament. What was he scared of? He's not scared of idols. They have no power. They have no authority. But he knew the destruction that this would bring to mankind. A graven image, if you're not familiar with that word, is something that is molded or carved or fashioned by a man's hand. If you've traveled into other countries, there are some places where different forms of physical, visible idolatry are still very prominent. If you've ever been to the island of Bali, and I wouldn't advise you to use it as a holiday destination, but having been there on mission trips many times, the, the Hindu statues are everywhere. And it seems that they chose the most ugly things they could possibly make. They're hideous looking things. But that's, that's the way of man. And so what is the big deal? Why is God so opposed to idols? And this is what it is. Man was made in God's image, designed and created to reflect God, to glorify God, to be in communion or close, intimate relationship with God. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam was the visible image of God in the sense that he was a reflection of God that was untainted. It was pure. He was made in God's image. At that point, he was the only visible image that God had. We know that the Son of God, that Jesus Christ, only existed then in the plan of God. There was no body until Bethlehem. And so at that point, Adam was God's way of saying, this is what I'm like. And that's why Adam was made. And the devil, whose pride caused him to attempt to exalt himself in the first place, introduced man to a sinful nature that would not only disobey God, but would remove God from the throne of human lives and replace him with self and would replace him with pride. That's why pride is so destructive because whether it's small and subtle or it's in direct outright rebellion, the pride that sin promotes is a direct rejection of the deity, the majesty and the sovereignty of God. Pride declares that it is my desires, my rules, my glory. That is what is most important in my life. Pride is all about what I want, how I want to live. Amen. Bless the Lord. So this is all interesting when we look through the scripture at history and what's taken place. But let's bring this down this morning to where you and I are at. Let's bring this to where the word of God does surgery on our hearts. 
I do not believe today, and if I'm wrong, we can sort that out, but I do not believe that you and I are struggling with the temptation to find a piece of wood, a stone, and fashion an image of some creature. Our battle, my battle, is not with resisting the urge to offer sacrifices to some false gods of other religions. When I've traveled through Bali, I've never had to fight the temptation to go and offer an, a, a sacrifice to one of their many thousands of idols. I don't, that doesn't even register in my mind. That's not our battle. We do not find ourselves like those in the Old Testament who need to bring in oxen to pull down giant statues and images to Baal or to cut down groves of trees where they worship nature. But it is the unseen images that we fashion and form in our own minds of our own selves that can bind us with chains that nobody else can see. We take pride in our self-image a lot more than we realize. Amen. And when we are first exposed to the preaching of the gospel, you remember the first time you came to the house of the Lord, and if you're visiting with us this morning, you might register with some of these comments. They're not shared as criticism, but as understanding. The Spirit of God moves on our hearts. We feel something we've never felt before, and there's something about it that we don't understand. We can't explain what's happening, but we know that God is in this place, and He begins to draw us unto Himself. It's not long after that that we begin to worry about what our friends and family will think if we respond to the gospel. If we go to this church that's full of those crazy Pentecostal people, what will my family say? What will my friends say? How will I deal with their opinion of me? Amen. And then you keep coming back to the house of the Lord because His presence is drawing us and we stand in a service and somebody preaches the gospel the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and gives you an opportunity to come and pray and present yourself to God and say, I want what that preacher is talking about. You find yourself right at that point of struggle because we're worried about how we look, what other people will think. If I go to that altar, he's talked about we need to repent. If I walk down that aisle, I come out of my chair and stand at this altar and begin to pray, everybody here is going to know I'm a sinner. Guess what? They already do because we're all sinners. But we worry about what people will say. We worry about how we look. Isn't it amazing that our own self-image can cause us to struggle with seeing our soul saved? And then finally, we come, this is not, everybody doesn't have the identical experience, but I've been in this thing long enough to know that these are common factors. You come to an altar, you don't really know what's going on. You stand there and you begin to pray and the Spirit of God begins to fall upon you and you fill your eyes well up with tears and you go, I can't start crying, what will people think? I'm going to embarrass myself in front of these people. What will they say? What will they think of me? I can't stand out here and cry in public. And there are some people that have never cried in public. It has a lot to do with the way they're raised. It's one of the, the great weaknesses of Western culture, particularly with men, that we're supposed to be strong and unemotional. I missed that gene somewhere. I'm sorry. That's one of the blessings of growing up in a Pentecostal church. You learn to let that stuff go. But we struggle 
Why? Because we're worried about the image that we have fashioned of ourselves. It's not made of stone or clay or wood, but it's in our minds and its chains are just as strong because it holds us back from responding to what God wants us to do and what he wants us to become. And we become so self-conscious about other people. Bless the Lord. But I want you to understand we only receive the forgiveness of God. We only receive the Spirit of God when that image is brought down at the feet of the King of Kings. Until we are willing to set aside that image that we have fashioned of ourselves in our own minds, we will never receive what God has for us. It manifests in a lot of other ways. It manifests when somebody stands in the pulpit and says, this is how you ought to live. This is what you ought to do. This is how often you ought to be in the house of the Lord. And we say, that doesn't fit with what I'm doing. That's a self-made image. Bless the Lord. You begin your journey with the Lord. You, you, you finally get over that first hurdle. You lay down that first idol and you find yourself in a worship service just like the one that we were blessed to be a part of this morning and the Spirit of God moves and you look across the church and there are crazy people with their hands lifted up toward heaven and something begins to stir in your heart and before you realize your hands start moving, you put them down again. You say, I can't do that. What will people think? How will I look? We keep those hands down, clench our fists if necessary and then some crazy person begins to dance as the Spirit of God moves on them, or Sister Sheila leads the army marching around the place, and we think these people are crazy, but our feet start to tap of their own accord. You have to put one foot on top of the other one to hold it there because you don't want to become affected by what's going on because of how you think you will look. Bless Lord, I'm going to look like a fool if I do that. You see, some people have this mindset that worship and demonstration of worship is, is for some people and not for others. I can't find that in the Word of God. It says to shout. It says to clap. It says to raise your hands. It says to dance. It says all of those things. It does not say only the loud, crazy people. Maybe we can have a section in the house of God where we put the quiet ones over here so they're comfortable. And then the ones that are in the middle we put over here and the really crazy people are on that side. That's the crazy zone over there. And it ought not to be like that. Nah, we're all in a different place now. We're with God, so don't take this as criticism. But I promise you, when you feel the Spirit move, when you feel the Spirit of God move and you feel like responding, there's an idol. There's an image. Again, it's not wooden. It's not made of stone. But you fashioned it in your own mind of your own identity. And that image that you form of yourself says, I can't do those things. We are worried about our own image, a representation that we have fashioned of ourselves in our own minds. I don't believe that every service should see every person in the church on their face at the altar weeping and crying out to God. I've been to churches where they've been taught where there's an altar call. Everybody has to come. I don't subscribe to that. Because that's like some kind of conditioning. If I don't go, the pastor's going to counsel me afterwards. I believe you should come to the altar as the Spirit of God draws you. That's how it ought to, And I don't think that, you know, every time we open the altar, that everybody should stand like robots and all walk down the front to the altar. 
But I do believe that God moves on all of us and that He wants to work in all of us and that when there are people that go for months, even years, and they come to the house of the Lord and you never see them broken. And yes, I watch because it's my job. And you never see them break in the presence of the Lord. That troubles me. At the other extreme, if every single service they were weeping and wailing and mourning, that would trouble me as well. But when there is that time after time after time where there is that tension and that resistance and it's not overcome and that that idol is not torn down and they say, God, whatever it is that you want, I want to have it. It's no stone, it's no wood, but it's fashioned in your own mind about who you have decided you are. I've taught on this scripture before and I will teach on it again. Ephesians 5 and 18 says, Be not drunk with wine. We're in his excess. Don't be drunk with alcohol. It's bad for you. You'll behave strangely. You'll do things. That's very good instruction. And I despise what alcohol has done to our culture in this country. There's nothing good that comes out of that. But there is a reason why it's partnered together in that verse with being filled with the Spirit. You can go to parties and social occasions, and there are people that call themselves social drinkers. What that means is they have a glass of wine or a beverage or two, not enough to affect their behavior. And I think that's a good practice. I think it's a better practice to have none at all. I believe that would please the Lord. But the reason is they're worried about how they will look in front of other people if they have enough alcohol to begin to change their behavior. They're worried about their image They're worried about what will be said at the office the next day or in the the workshop or the schoolhouse or wherever it might be. They're worried about how people will see the image that they want them to see because they had enough to drink that it affected their behavior in a strange fashion. There's a reason that Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Too many apostolics are social spirit drinkers. Come to the house of the Lord, we have a little worship and a little word and a little fellowship, but God forbid that it should affect my behavior. God forbid that I should have enough of His Spirit that I might get drunk and do something crazy. Because I've got an idol, I've got an image that says, that's who I am. I'm not like these people, I'm proper. I'm keeping myself dignified and looking the part. I'm not going to let those things get into my life. It's idolatry. It's idolatry of self. And I'm not saying that we should go out of our way to embarrass ourselves and be foolish. But I read where David brought the Ark of the Covenant home. The king, he was at the top of the tree. And he began to dance and to worship and to be extravagant in his sacrifice. And his image and that thing that how the people saw him did not matter. And he got home and his wife, who was the king's daughter, if you please, looked out the window and said, didn't you make a fool of yourself in public today? You're the king. What are you doing behaving like that? And David said, in the modern Simon Butcher version of the Bible, he said, baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. 
If you think that was bad, give me a little time. I'll show you how to have church. The Bible basically describes that their relationship from that point lost all intimacy. You see, you may not have an idol standing in the corner of your home or a grove of trees in your backyard where you go to worship nature. But if your reputation and your self-image are binding you with chains of pride, then you have a graven image of your own making that needs to be torn down. If we worried half as much about what God thinks as we do about what others think, then he would be the one transforming us into his image, not us fashioning ourselves into our own image. Amen. The preservation of our own image prevents us from freedom in worship. It holds us back from sharing the gospel. It cripples us from being able to go to a brother or a sister and make something right because we're so worried about that image that we've fashioned in our own minds. The worship of self causes us to resist the Word of God. When the Bible clearly says, you don't have to twist it and study it in ancient languages, when it clearly says that you must be baptized in Jesus' name, and you know that it says that, we're too proud to obey it, because it means that we must acknowledge that there's something wrong with the image we have of ourselves, that there's something we've not yet done, that we are incomplete. Bless the Lord. There's a reason the Bible says that pride comes before destruction. It's not talking about a building falling down, but you can be cost, you can lose your soul through pride and your own self. You know, let me, let me be very honest with you this morning. Concern about self-image affects us all. And the Bible does say that we need to be of a good report of those within and without. We, need, we do need to take care of our reputation. That's not what I'm talking about. But we worry. It affects every one of us. I worry about my image. I'm the pastor, after all. I'm supposed to have all the answers. Be the most holy and righteous person in the building. Sorry. But you worry about what people think, what people say. And if you're human and you're honest, it affects every one of us, which is why we regularly have to come back to him and say, God, I'm taking that image and I'm putting it down at your feet. We have to worry less about what others think and more about what he thinks. Because as we listen to the voices of our society and even the voices of our families, we can build an image that we feel like we have to conform to. And you will not become what God wants until you tear that thing down. Idolatry in the Old Testament always led to defeat in battle. It led to failure in their crops and in their herds and consequences in their families and in their nation. And if we have images that we have fashioned for ourselves that we will not address, you will lose the battle. You'll lose your victory. You'll lose your joy. You will not be blessed as God wants you to be blessed. But when Israel woke up from time to time as they realized how destitute 
they became and they tore those things down and they killed the prophets of Baal and they did all the things that God wanted them to do. The face of God was turned upon them again. They became blessed of God again. Suddenly they won on the battlefield. God blessed their herds and He blessed their crops and He blessed their families. Why? Because they put Him back on the throne where He belongs. Bless the Lord. All of us need to tear down the idol of our own self-image because it wants to bind us with chains. James 4 and 6 and 1 Peter 5 and 5. I'm coming to a close. If I could have you on the piano, please, sisters. Thank you. Talks to us. Again, it's the same, the parallel passages that talk about if we will humble ourselves and the Lord will lift us up. In In both of the same passages, it also tells us that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know that word resist means in the original? We think of resist, we think of, you know, just you know, pushing against. When you look at that original word, it, it, it's, like, it, it's the word that means to set yourself in battle against, to set your army up. When you exalt yourself, you set yourself in opposition to God. In fact, the same word is translated in another passage speaking about those that oppose themselves. I don't want to be in opposition with God. I don't want God to be set against me. He doesn't do that because he's vindictive or he wants to destroy us, but he recognizes that until we tear that image down, the devil will use it to destroy us. You cannot be victorious until that image is broken down. Bless the Let's stand together. <clears throat> Hallelujah. I'm not looking for a church that's not that what I'm looking for is important, but I don't believe God is looking for a church where everybody's bouncing off the ceiling just because we're all trying to demonstrate we've got liberty. But I'm looking for genuine liberty. Freedom from worrying. What did it say? He made himself of no reputation. doesn't matter what other people think. There are example after example after example in the Scripture of people who got over their own self-image to get to Jesus. We preach them again and again. The woman with the issue of blood. The, the sinner woman that came in and washed his feet while he sat at dinner. Blind Bartimaeus who cried out on the roadside. Zacchaeus who climbed the tree. There is example after example of people who said, I don't care about how I look anymore. I'm going to get to Jesus. And it was those people, those people that he responded. Not the multitude so much. There were times that it says he healed them all. But often in a crowd, one person tore an idol down and said, I don't care, I'm going to reach him. The time when all of the lawyers and doctors were gathered together and the Bible says that the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And a sick man with palsy was lowered through the roof. And one man was healed. One man. Because all the others had such big idols of self. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a Pharisee. I'm an important person. I'm happy to sit here and listen to this Jesus, but don't think I'm going to get too carried away. I'm not about to get involved in this crazy religious fanaticism. No, no, no. I have an image to protect. You read it everywhere. The Pharisee, God praying on the corner of the street, God, you're so blessed to have me. I'm awesome. 
I'm not like that filthy sinner over there who was on his knees, hitting his chest, saying, be merciful. He, tore, he, he had an idol as well. His idol was full of sin. He tore it down and said, God, be merciful. I'm being honest this morning. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I'm incomplete. And the Bible says only one of them went to his house, made whole or blessed or accepted of the Lord. Lift our hands this morning and close our eyes. And as the music plays, allow the Spirit of the Lord to look deep into our hearts. The Bible says that he's able to discern between the thought and the intent. God, that we would get over ourselves, that I would get over myself. And be so more worried about what God thinks than having some perfect image in the eyes of other people. And break the chains of pride this morning.